Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Earl Moxham. We begin with a very disturbing story on human trafficking right here in Jamaica. Roshan Chaguri, the Indian businessman who convinced his compatriot to travel to Jamaica and work at his tours as tour manager, but instead forced him to perform domestic labor without pay, has been sentenced to serve 10 years in prison for human trafficking. But we want to get some reactions and follow-ups. First of all, Ambassador Curtis Ward is quite familiar with the global fight against human trafficking, and so I sought his perspectives on the current status of that effort. Human trafficking is a transnational crime, but there are also um, evidence of some human trafficking take place within borders of large states. It makes a lot of money for traffickers, and it affects tens of millions of people. The estimates of annual earnings of human traffickers from this egregious crime are more than $150 billion annually. And it is estimated that human trafficking, also referred to as modern-day slavery, affects over 40 million people and takes many forms. The global community is very much awakened to the scourge of human trafficking, and there are significant efforts across the world to end it. Um, as you know, the United States annually issues what it calls its Trafficking in Persons Report, or the TIP report, which ranks countries' ability and will to end human trafficking, whether they have the capacity, whether they are doing what they're expected to do or trying to do to end human trafficking. It is something which has the attention of the international community, but not within media circles. Generally, the media tends to ignore human trafficking unless a human trafficking network is broken up by law enforcement. So that is one of the, the things I believe we need to improve on. It still seems that for some people, this is one of the more difficult crimes to define and categorize. The UN Office on Drugs and Crime, the UNODC, defines human trafficking as the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of people through force, fraud, or deception with the aim of exploiting them for profit. We should distinguish between human smuggling and human trafficking. While human smuggling sometimes turns into human trafficking, they are two different things. In human smuggling, both the smuggler and the individual smuggled benefits from the exercise. In human trafficking, only the, the trafficker benefits from the exercise. And we must also note that human trafficking involves women, young girls, and young boys. 
And of course, in that regard, it comes in various forms, doesn't it? Including exploitation for sex. And that includes women, girls, and boys. Entertainment and hospitality industries is also another area where human trafficking takes place. So are domestic workers and enforced marriages. We also know that victims are exploited in the labor force where large numbers are forced to work in factories, on construction sites, or in the agricultural sector for low wages, while living in fear of violence, oftentimes in inhumane conditions. Some victims of human trafficking are forced to provide organs, we call it organ harvesting, and are trafficked for large sums of money. I know you have done some work with the Jamaican authorities over the years on this matter. How much progress do you think we have been making? Well, I haven't done a whole lot of work with them per se, but one of my very dear friends who was a victim of human trafficking has done quite a bit of work in Jamaica and across the Caribbean and right here in the United States. I think Jamaica has been very robust in its anti-trafficking campaign but has not been very successful in prosecuting human traffickers or investigating and making arrests. So whenever I see someone being charged, tried and convicted for human trafficking in Jamaica, it really lights me up because it shows me that there is some progress being made. But I believe there is a large amount of human trafficking taking place which are not being investigated, prosecuted, and people are not being convicted and punished for this crime as they should be. In that respect, what are some of the signs that one should look out for? What are some of the sectors that should be scrutinized more closely? Well, one of the most difficult to find are those who are being held in forced labor, particularly in households, because these individuals are under threat from their enslavers, and that's what they are, those who keep them by force to work for free in their households. In the entertainment industry, and Jamaica has a large entertainment industry in the tourism sector, we should be more vigilant about who are the workers, including the sex workers in some of these establishments in the tourist sections of Jamaica. And from time to time, these have been discovered. I once had a conversation with a JCF officer in charge of human trafficking. And he indicated to me that there are quite a bit going on in the tourist sector in particular. There are foreign women who are brought into Jamaica to serve the sex industry, which proliferates in tourist sectors 
not just in Jamaica, but certainly elsewhere in the world as well. And, and I want to say, I know the media is not an arm of the government and does not have the responsibility to do what the government should do. But we all have a moral responsibility to end human trafficking, to protect our women, our girls and young men from this scourge that plagues our societies. Ambassador Curtis Ward, and just let me go back and give you a little bit of the background to the story which led to that interview with Ambassador Ward, that case in which uh, Rohan Chigori, this Indian businessman, was convicted of human trafficking and sentenced to 10 years on one count and five years on another. So he should be serving 10 years in all because the two sentences will run concurrently. But the prosecutor revealed, or the prosecution revealed, that a day after the victim arrived from India, remember he came to be a store manager, he was provided a list of duties for him to do around the house of his victimizers, including cooking, cleaning, and washing. The court also heard that the victim's passport was taken away two weeks after he arrived in Jamaica. These are all sure signs of human trafficking. His cellular phone also went missing after he was warned by the businessman that he was spending too much time on the device. He was banned from using his phone at the store. So for some reactions, let me go quickly now to two of our regular panelists. We have Latoya West Blackwood and Nicole Gordon, attorney at law. Nicole, just in terms of what a case like this might indicate in terms of whether we are making progress in in this matter. Your thoughts? I do think that we are making progress um, in this matter. Um, It's interesting because Ambassador Ward mentioned that one of his concerns was that we weren't investigating and we weren't um, prosecuting and we weren't convicting. And um, this case certainly shows that uh, Something is happening. And it's very interesting because, for one, uh, we're talking about somebody, a migrant. So we're talking about a foreigner who's coming to Jamaica, one. Two, we're talking about a male because often the most vulnerable are our young women um, and children. So it's interesting that it's a male. But the story and the background to it, I think, also highlights some important aspects of of the issue that we face. But I do think, um, just to be specific about your question, I do think we are doing something. Um, we have an Office of the National Rapporteur on Trafficking in Persons. I think that is extremely important. Um, from a legislative person, we actually have legislation on it. And the way that the legislation is written, I think, is very important because the uh, Legislation actually imposes an obligation on the government to take all reasonable steps to identify victims in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the victim was a foreign victim. So, you know, we're not talking only about Jamaican victims, and those exist, and we can talk more about that a little later on. But that obligation is imposed on the government by law. And the other interesting thing I found about the legislation is that the legislation also imposes an obligation. It says it, the government shall take appropriate 
steps to assist victims where practicable. And it talks about assistance in terms of understanding the laws, obtaining relevant documents and so on. All of that's in the legislation. So I think at least at that level, there is a very real effort. And in this situation, uh, the uh, perpetrator actually got the maximum sentence. The maximum sentence is 10 years. I think that should be increased, quite frankly, because I think that this issue is so um, real and so significant and so impactful on the individual. This particular person, when I read the article, they said that he attempted suicide and that he could not contact his family, which is a normal thing in these situations. So the 10 years sound like a little bit, um, but at least it is there and amendments can be made to the legislation. So so I do think, I mean, certainly on, uh, as it is, we do have solid, um, robust legislation, as I said, outside of the, um, the, the term, um, and we are doing something. It can't be said that we're not doing anything. We are doing something. Yes. Uh, and Latoya, the importance of victims feeling confident to make these reports because they are very vulnerable, but if, they, if there's a certain level of confidence that the state will protect them, then we'll see more of them being brave enough to make reports. Right. I agree with, in large measure with a lot of what Nicole has said, but having read the TIP report myself for 2022, I would want to point out that um, this case is encouraging in that looking at it from another angle, in that I think there are some stereotypes that filter into maybe even the detection element of um, some of these cases of human trafficking that don't obviously um, involve women and girls yes. and sexual exploitation. Looking at the, the, the point being made um, by Nicole in terms of the efforts, um, you know, because Jamaica is now currently at Tier 2, where it's saying that, you know, we're not meeting the minimum requirement in some areas. Mm-hmm. And I would think that, I think uh, in the, what this case highlights for me is that there are still some things like stereotypes that feed into the, the formal um, means of detection in cases that don't fit the typical profile of, you know, a, a woman or a young girl being exploited sexually or um, trafficked in that way. But these instances of forced labor, because let's if, if we're being very honest, there are certain groups in Jamaica, ethnic groups, that we have come to say, okay, we have an understanding that, you know, in these communities, relatives and other people are routinely, um, you know, brought into the country and Mm -hmm. there's an arrangement around, you know, economic well-being or prosperity and how that works out, whether they work in a business or whatever. But under that kind of veil, who really looks deeper in some instances say, hmm, okay, I know that this might be generally accepted, but is everybody who is living in this space, um, are they being treated fairly? If it is that you are brought into the country under the guise of, you know, coming in to work in a business, um, should the fact that you're related or related whether by blood or having some arrangement, should that alone just you know, cut off the questioning, how does that person feel confident um, even in a case where, you know, their their general means of communication is taken from them, if they do have the opportunity mm-hmm. to communicate any at all, 
um, from the, the regular person to a law enforcement officer to whoever else that they get an opportunity to communicate with, will their claims be taken seriously and escalated formally? Yes. So that was something interesting that jumped out at me because of the cases that were officially office, um, investigated in the last period that the report covered, um, we can see why something like that could happen because 53 potential trafficking cases were investigated and 51 of them involved sexual, um, sex trafficking while mm-hmm. only two others were, you know, looking at forced labor. Yes. So is it that is it's really in reality that there it's not really a major concern or is it that the detection mechanisms um, that should be monitoring when people are brought into the country under this guise of, okay, they're coming to work in a business or whatever it is, who follows up, um, what, you know, avenue that do they have or others who have information have to report um, instances of forced labor. So that was that was yeah. a take-away. I, I think that's a, that's a very important matter to perhaps follow up on, but... I'm going to go back briefly to, uh, uh, well, I'm going to go to another clip. Earlier on, you had heard Ambassador Curtis Ward make mention of a friend who had been a victim of trafficking. Her name is Shamir McKenzie, a Jamaican whose ordeal took place in the United States. And she shared her experience with me in 2017. And, and um, Latoya, here is one victim who was a victim of the classical sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. Here's just a bit of that interview in which she explained that the man who eventually became her captor and abuser gained her confidence while she was a college student seeking to conserve her spending and save money to put herself through her course of study. So over a period of time, you know, this wasn't just in a day where this happened. Over a period of time of speaking to him, I developed a level of trust, of course, and I shared with him that I was $3,000 short of paying for my tuition that semester and he said well you know if you have this off-campus apartment and you're working trying to save you can't save if you're going to be paying rent i have a i have a basement apartment that you can stay and you won't have to pay rent so after i moved my stuff in he said well you're going to need to make money real quick i know a way that you can do that all you have to do is dance now you know i thought about it and i said well i know a lot of girls that dance their way through college, there's nothing wrong with that. And the first night he put me into a club, I made $300 in two hours. And that's, you know, still have my clothes on, it's called a titty bar, and no one touched me. So I immediately began to do the math, two hours, $300, I need 3,000, this will be no time. But then he took me outside of that club and he brought me to this house on a regular residential block in Brooklyn and told me it was $10 for a wall dance and $20 for a lap dance. Before we proceed into this house, was he holding on to the money that you have been making at the other place? Yes. So every single dollar that I made from that strip club, I had to turn over to him. Did that not say something to you that was not quite right? No, because he said he's helping me to save. So the way these traffickers operate initially, they know when you are really naive to the issue. And so with me, he saw that, okay, this was a college student that was more focused on social justice. So he fed into that while this part, he's like, well, you know, if you're really trying to save and I have this basement apartment, you may be tempted. So let me hold this for you. 
And after a period of time, like months gone by, I'm like, where's my money? He's like, your money, right? And so that happens after a period of time. But by the time you even got to asking for your money, it's that cycle of abuse, both physically and psychologically, had already started. Oh, he had begun to abuse you. Yes, both physically and psychologically, because the very first night um, when he took me to this house, actually, and this guy um, propositioned me, I cursed the guy out, but he overheard that conversation. And he pulled me to the side and he said, you're going to go do whatever that guy said do. And I said, did you hear what he asked me? And he said, yes, it's $50. And I said, well, you go do it then. And I told him I was going to leave. And I took one step forward and he put his hand around my throat and brought me back to my position. And he said, do you really think you can make it out of here alive? And I began to assess that situation, remembering the big bodybuilder looking guys at the front door. And I thought, you know, I really can't make it out of here alive. But I had a plan. When I got home, I was going to tell him I was going to leave because there was be no nobody else to assist him or anything. So when I got home, I said, you know, thank you so much for your help. I'm going to go downstairs and pack my stuff. The dance stuff, I was okay with, but prostitution, that's not my thing. And so he said, do you really think you could leave me? And I said, yes. And when he went after my throat, I immediately punched him in the face. And so that's when I learned rule number one, never hit a pimp. Because he started, he had on his Timberland boots, he started kicking me with his Timberland boots. He had rings on his finger, he started punching me with his rings. He choked me to the point of unconsciousness, where he popped a uh, blood vessel in my right eye, and I still have the spot there today. And he just choked me to the point of unconsciousness, where I lost functions of my bodily fluids. Shamir McKenzie, a Jamaican whose human trafficking mm-hmm. experience took place in the United States. I still have Nicole Gordon and Latoya West Blackwood. Nicole, this sounds familiar in terms of some of the strategies used in sex trafficking. Absolutely. Um, just a couple of quick points. My first exposure to an actual victim of sex trafficking was when I went to a screenplay. There's a Jamaican called Nana Moses who's highlighted this issue um, in a play and in a work called Where's Melissa? He did another one called Rescue. And that particular victim who was being interviewed um, at, at one of the shows actually explained that she became a victim when she saw an advertisement in a Jamaican newspaper. She came from the country, saw the ad in the newspaper, wanted to come to Kingston to advance her life met the person, I think, in halfway three. And when that happened, she was then taken to a particular location. And that is where the exploitation begins. Quite innocuous, in a public way, but then it went underground and she couldn't leave. That was real. That was her real circumstance. So it is real and, and as Latoya said, and as you said, this matter with this Indian gentleman is really, I would have to say it's atypical, but there is a reality of trafficking within our shores that we have to think about and consider. I want to say also that when you listen to a story like that, there might be a temptation to judge I don't think that's the appropriate approach because when I sat and listened to the experiences of that lady um, at that screening on that occasion, you recognize that really 
she was looking for a better way and got caught in a situation that was completely unexpected. Yes. And she couldn't get out of it. So it is not appropriate to judge in these circumstances. I also want to say, and because Latoya mentioned this matter of the gap where it concerns investigation, prosecution, and that sort of thing, which I think we have to highlight, and it's important too. I think one of the largest gaps, Earl, because even in the context of legislation where, you know, they say, boy, you take reasonable steps to do this and that, where's the victim protection mechanism? I think that needs to be strengthened. I don't think we have the kinds of homes and care that you need to give um, to these victims. We hear in that story how the person was beat up. And when you think about it and the vulnerability of the people who end up in those situations in the first place, one thing you realize is that they don't necessarily have all the social support that they need to have. So when you get beat up and banged up like that, where do you run to? It's very difficult. Indeed. And I don't think we have that kind of system um, existing to really accommodate um, persons who have been victimized in this way. And I really think that as a country, we need to work on that. Latoya, I just saw a text message from Faye Ellington raising the question of the role of neighbors and the community to alert mm -hmm. the authorities as well. Very important that everybody is sensitized to these signs and to make the reports when they see something that is not quite right. Correct. And that whole thing of judgment that Nicole brought up just now, um, trafficking has no... I think sometimes some of us believe that trafficking is limited to a particular socioeconomic group because when the word vulnerable is used, it tends to invoke, um, you know, these visions of people who are quote-unquote needy or from a certain background. But trafficking can touch any household. And so... That level of vigilance, that level of creating safe spaces where people can feel, you know, comfortable um, telling someone that, you know, this is, even if the situation isn't at its worst, but it's at that stage where it's progressing from. Because she outlines to you that first she was engaged in this way, she shared what her need was, then, you know, they moved from step one to step two. So, you know, sometimes there's an opportunity um, for outside of the authorities, a neighbor, a teacher, somebody to step in and to provide some help or assistance that can, you know, mitigate um, in some instances. But I would just say that, you know, we have to continue the public education and I think there needs to be a lot more synergy in terms of how our agencies work together. Um, to, to close a lot of the gaps and finally that kind of um, psychosocial support after because in this case where the gentleman was reportedly thinking of self-harming um, is, is that people believe that with the prosecution um, wrapped up that that's going to end for him he will continue to grapple with mental health issues hopefully not for the rest of his productive life but with some support, um, deliberate support, not one that he has to go and try and see by himself, he will be able to somewhat lead a normal life um, going forward.